reading this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not, sorry, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled into, into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks for the reading, Joyce, and uh, thanks for the prayer, uh, Sam. Always encouraged to see Sam uh, blessing the church in some way. He's come a long way, for sure. If you know, you know. Uh, I want to welcome brother Sean Kim, uh, who's joining us for the first time. Sean, you sitting back there? Raise your hand for a second. Let's give Sean a warm welcome. Yeah, glad you can join us. Also, for the membership class, this uh, so next Sunday we'll have a membership class. Uh, unless you offer your home to host the class, assume that it'll be at church, okay? So we'll probably meet uh, either up here or downstairs. Uh, so that is the assumption. If anything changes, I'll uh, send an email out, okay? But all are welcome, okay? All right. I think that's it. Let's start then. You know, it wasn't my original plan to uh, preach from Jonah, but Pastor Xiong did such an excellent job last Sunday unpacking the first chapter of Jonah, didn't he? I was uh, personally blessed, and so I, th I thought it would be appropriate to continue with this series and make it a sort of a brief series, leading us into our spring revival event. Uh, you know, last week, we learned that God had called Jonah to preach a message of repentance to Nineveh. But instead of obeying God's word and heading to Nineveh, what did Jonah choose to do? He chose to go the exact opposite direction, right? Nineveh is that way. You know, he, he decided to go to a place called Tarshish. Hard to pronounce. Uh, but that was sort of the, the backdrop here. And, and um, I, I just wanted to spend a little more time helping you understand why it was so hard for Jonah to obey the Lord in that particular instance, okay? Because, you know, Pastor Xiong, he offered some explanation, but didn't uh, go that deep into that uh, reasoning. And so uh, I want to make it clear that uh, Nineveh was the capital 
of a country called Assyria. And Assyria was one of Israel's most ruthless enemies who eventually ends up destroying Israel a few decades later in 722 BC. It's a huge deal in uh, Jewish history. So, I mean, they, they were, if you didn't know, notorious for their cruelty during those days. One commentator put it like this. They were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient Near East. They impaled their prisoners, blinded them, cut off their hands or lower lips to keep track and counting, and they built up piles and piles of skulls. That's who they were. That's, that's what they were known for. Uh, if you're having a hard time imagining just the hatred Jonah was harboring in his heart. I mean, you can think about the hatred the Jews had under Nazi Germany. It was that kind of hatred. Or think about the hatred the Koreans felt under Japanese rule during the early 1900s, right? Men were beheaded, the women were raped, right? The children were burned. I mean, our, our grandparent generation knows very well. We heard stories of the brutality during that era, haven't we? I mean, people witnessed firsthand, right, their friends and family members tortured and put to death. And here in our context today, I mean, don't you think Jonah would have had close friends and family members that fell victim to Assyrian cruelty? Surely he knew people, at least. And so the dilemma for Jonah was this, right? He, he knew, he knew that God was a gracious God, and he, likely he was going to forgive his enemies, that he would not exact his justice upon them. He was not going to destroy them if Jonah went to Nineveh and gave the message of repentance. And if, in Jonah's mind, if that was going to be the case, then he didn't want anything to do with it. I won't go. And that's why he chose to run in the opposite direction. You see, Jonah was perfectly fine in going along with God's plan, but only up to a certain point. He had his limits. When things got too uncomfortable for him, he concluded, I cannot do this anymore. I will run the other way. And that's exactly how we tend to behave as well, isn't it? And so we should be able to relate fine. You know, sin can be defined as breaking God's law. Some of you may have heard the definition of it was, you know, it's missing the mark of God, right? But in the book of Jonah, sin is predominantly understood to be this picture of man fleeing from God. So what's the opposite of that? How would you define grace? If that's the definition of sin, right, how would you define grace well, grace in the book of Jonah is understood to be God pursuing man, right? Sin is man fleeing from God. Grace is God pursuing man. And what makes the story of Jonah so powerful and moving is that it's permeated with this kind of idea of God pursuing man. And so that's how I, I, I outline the message for this morning, okay? The outline is very simple. It's number one. God, God's grace to the sailors, right? That's something that uh, Pastor Sheung didn't talk about at all. He focused on uh, God's grace to Jonah for the most part. And so that's why part two is God's grace to Jonah, but I'm going to uh, keep that portion a little short. 
And then part three, God's grace to us, okay? God's grace to the sailors, to Jonah, and then to us. So let's look at part one first, God's grace to the sailors. From verses 7 through 17, much of the narrative is actually about how the unbelieving sailors react to this terrible storm that falls upon them. Verse 7 says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. They're in desperation mode here. We need to know whose account this evil has come upon us. So this must not have been just any ordinary storm because, again, these, I mean, these were professional sailors. They've seen plenty of storms in their lifetime. But this particular storm, there's something really strange about it. And so they decided we, we need to know whose account. They, they defined it as evil. Like there's something evil about this storm, right? And so they, they cast lots. That's, that's sort of the ancient practice. Probably use some sticks or stones. And by the way, this was not only common among pagans, but even Israelites at times, you know, uh, used these casting of lots to receive some kind of revelation from God. But I want to make it very clear to all of you, brothers and sisters, we're not to use these kinds of methods anymore. You know, when we seek God's will, you know, because we are now given the infallible word of God, we're no longer uh, expected to rely upon these fallible methods of, of throwing dice or using like eight balls or visiting the local palm reader and such, okay? We're, we're called to rely upon the revealed word, word of God. But in our story today, the pagan sailors cast lots and either God himself reveals the answer or maybe it's possible evil spirits were involved with this. Nonetheless, they, they, they find out that Jonah is the culprit, right? The reason for the storm is Jonah. The, the, the lots fall upon Jonah, and they, they confront him. I'm going to skip some of the details here, but they confront him. And verse 9, it says, here's, here's Jonah's response. He, he confesses, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And it's in caps, the Lord, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, what does that mean? Referring to the, the special name of God, right? The holy name of God, Yahweh. Right? I, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He, he offers a very simple but clear confession. And notice once they learn that Jonah is a Hebrew who fears Yahweh, they are gripped with Fear, verse 10, and the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? <laughs> and the reason why they're afraid, it, it must be because they've heard the name Yahweh before. Yahweh was known to them, right? Uh, he was the one who broke the will of Pharaoh and freed uh, God's people from slavery. Uh, the, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is the one who parted the Red Sea, right? This is what God who led his people into the land of Canaan with such force and power. And so knowing this Yahweh, they asked Jonah, what shall we do to make the sea quiet down? Jonah tells them that they must throw him into the sea. They must sacrifice Jonah's life. But surprisingly, the sailors don't follow through with it. At least initially they don't, right? They first decide to spare Jonah's life, thinking that they might be able to row themselves safely. <laughs> they're going to save themselves somehow. I thought about this. 
seen. You know, maybe these sailors are actually pretty uh, noble men, right? They, they had a genuinely high regard for human life, right? It's hard to know for sure, but they seem like decent men, don't they, in the story? They want to do the decent thing. They want to save a life. But one very important point of the story, you know, is that God's wrath and his sense of justice, it cannot be appeased by man's act of kindness. <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen, right? You see, the storm of God, it rages on, even as these sailors try to do a very humanly decent thing. The thing is this, if, if God makes it clear as to what is required to calm the raging sea, you cannot respond to him with, wait, let, let me try my way first. I think my way is going to be better. That's exactly what's happening here, right? Instead of following God's way, the sailors tried to do it their way first. And how often have we been guilty of this kind of sin, I would call it? Let me try my way first, God. I know that you've spoken or you made it very clear as to what you deem is good and, and true, but I want to try to live my life my way first. It's a very natural human response. And whenever we act in this way, brothers and sisters, we overestimate our innocence and we grossly underestimate God's Holiness. In our day, we often hear, why can't God just forgive and, and save everyone? Right? Why does he allow people to suffer and die? The same mentality. Why, why can't God just love people like we love people? <laughs> as, if, as if his love is less than ours. And all these sentiments may sound noble to our sin-tainted ears, but I want to challenge you to consider how such sentiments actually reveal one's blatant disregard for God's holiness. We actually don't know what we speak. We have no clue, no idea who God actually is. God is far greater than man. Jonah was not innocent and neither were any of the sailors. You cannot expect to go against God's will and expect things to get any better. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it says, the heart of a road, no matter how hard they try to row, harder and harder they row, what does it say? The more tempestuous or tempestuous the sea grew. Isn't that like a very accurate picture of how life tends, tends to work? We try, to, we try so hard to, to fix our lives according to our wisdom. But what happens? The sea continues to grow. Right? The, the waves continue to crash. Once they realized that God was not going to relent, that's when they decided to throw Jonah overboard, pleading to Yahweh that, he wouldn't hold them responsible for this man's death. Again, they seem like fairly decent men, you know? I mean, think about the scene. This, this would have been a very 
powerful scene if we were able to witness it firsthand. But it's like, as soon as Jonah is thrown into the water, things are like crashing, but the boat's about to flip, people are about to die. Oh my goodness, what's gonna happen? And as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard, what happens? This raging sea becomes calm, perfectly still. So what just happened? Think about you witnessing that scene. How would you have responded to this revelation of God's glory and power and majesty? The sailors, they were afraid when the storm was raging. We already established that, right? But check this out. They're even more afraid now that the sea is calm. Their fear has changed. Right? Before, they were just afraid for their lives. But now, their fear turns into a genuine fear of the Lord, fear of Yahweh. My goodness, who is this God? And they end up worshiping him in the last scene as a result. They recognize his glory and might. And they can't help but to bow down to him now, these pagan sailors. Notice how their prayers change as well. In the beginning of the storm, they're crying out to all sorts of gods, right, to their gods, to their polytheistic way of life. But toward the end, they're crying out to Yahweh alone. They experience some kind of transformation of heart and mind. They're recognizing that this world is not what they thought it was. Verse 16, that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. They're different men now. They've seen God's glory. And so my point here is that God, though these sailors are such a minor part in the story, why would, why would God have any, any regard for these men? But he does. He gives them grace as well. He reveals his glory to them as well. And as a result, their lives are changed forever. They may have suffered loss economically because they had to dump all of the cargo overboard to lighten the load, but they've gained so much more. They thought that they were doomed because of one man's sin, but in the end, they learned that because of one man's sacrifice, they're able to now live. I like how this one commentator put it. It gives us, gives us a different perspective here. But he writes, who knows but that these Tarshish-bound mariners were the seas for the later and wider knowledge of God in Spain. We remember the Apostle Paul's fervent desire to preach the gospel in Spain. Perhaps God was preparing the groundwork through these converted sailors who now were, are worshiping Yahweh, who've witnessed the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, many of you were all once like these pagan sailors at one point in your lives, weren't you? You viewed God as simply one of many other gods, but because of God's love for you, he sent a storm of grace to open up your blind eyes so that you can see that he alone is worthy of your life. Do not overlook such grace. Don't take that grace for granted. 
That's the reason why you're here, many of you, worshiping Yahweh with the broader church. Part two, God's grace to Jonah. I wanted to clarify Jonah's main problem. What is wrong with this man in this story? See, Jonah's problem was not that he desired justice. He wanted justice. He wanted God's enemies to encounter God's judgment and wrath. They've done terrible things. They deserve to be punished. That was clear in his mind. He wanted justice. And you know what? That's not a bad desire to have. There's nothing wrong with wanting justice. His problem was that he failed to desire mercy. Most commentators point out that Jonah is mostly ruled by self-righteousness that manifests itself in hatred, sheer hatred toward his enemies. I mean, there's, there's no skirting around this. He was practically a racist. I mean, you mentioned the word Assyrian, hatred just coming out of his heart. Hate those people, right? Well, nothing to do with them. I want them all dead. I'm not going to go try to convert them. That was his heart attitude. Humanly speaking, you can understand why, again, if you've seen this, the stuff he's seen, experience. But that was his problem. I think I would probably, I know that many of us struggle. We know what that sin is. We struggle with those sins ourselves. I know what that is. We must be able to desire not only justice, brother, sister, but also we need to be willing to extend mercy, especially when we see God desiring mercy especially when God calls us to extend mercy to others. We cannot run from him. I truly believe that God wants us to live in tension when it comes to justice and mercy. Because God is both a God of justice, he cannot ignore sin, but he's also a God of mercy, he forgives sin in a just manner. And in the end, we will never quite understand why he extends mercy to some and justice to others. But we need to be given the wisdom. We have to be able to practice the wisdom of trusting in his ways. It may be helpful for you to know that one of God's other prophets, Nahum, prophesied against Assyria, the same people, Later on, about 100 years down the road, and, and at that time, guess what? God does not extend mercy to them. He extends judgment upon them. And so it's like, it's confusing. And we want to we respond with why. why. Why justice then and not now, you know? Why mercy now? Why not mercy then, maybe we ask ourselves. Why can't you extend mercy all the time, God, right? No, he doesn't do that. But that's not our domain. We need to trust in God's wisdom and his sovereign plan. God shows mercy and kindness to Assyria during Jonah's time. We need to be at peace with that. 
God brings judgment upon Assyria during Nahum's time. That is how God works. It's according to his wisdom and timing. And our hearts ought to always grieve over lost souls, but there also needs to be a sense of peace that governs us whenever God's mercy or wrath is displayed. Our job is not to question God's timing. Our, God, our job is to trust in God's timing. So the story reveals that Jonah is a mixed bag. He's a work in progress, isn't he? He's the one who ran away from the Lord, right? He's the one who chose to sleep in the inner part of the ship while chaos ensues on deck. But he's also the one who made the clear confession regarding his faith in the Lord when it mattered the most. Even though, I'm sure you kind of missed this. I had to really think about this portion. He made a clear confession regarding his faith even though he had all opportunity to just continue to run from God and, and not mention anything about God. Because look at the questions that he's asked here by these sailors. Essentially, who are you? What is your job? Where are you from? What is your country? You know, of what people are you? Those are the questions. Nothing about his faith. <laughs> Nothing about, like, what do you believe? I mean, if you think about this, right? If, if you were angry at God and someone asked you these series of questions, would you go out of your way to mention anything about your personal faith in the Lord? Like, who are you? What would your response be? Like, you're angry at God. Who are you? Well, my name is so-and-so, right? Where are you from? What would your response be? You would say, I'm from Northern Virginia. Okay? I'm a U.S. citizen. Okay? You wouldn't have to share anything more. What is your job? Okay. Well, I'm a government IT consultant, right, from Northern Virginia. Like, that's 90% of your answer, right? You can chuckle, right? What, what people are you from? Well, most of us, I'm Korean American. And then you move on. You go back under, you know, in the ship and you sleep again, right? Forget, forget you guys. I'm just going to go back to sleep. What else do you want to know? That's not, that's not Jonah, though. Jonah didn't have to mention anything about his faith, yet he did. And his response was, I am a Hebrew. Right? He doesn't actually directly answer the questions. <laughs> doesn't mention anything about his job. I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. He's the one who made the sea and dry land. In other words, he, he can control all this stuff you see around. Right? If you contextualize, it would be like us saying, I am a Christian. And I fear the Lord. It's like, what's your job? I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I, where are you from? I'm a Christian. Right? It's weird. Like, whoa, whoa. That's, that's like, I didn't ask you that question. So many believe that this is Jonah's turning point. But because of the storm and God's gracious pursuit of him, he's remembering his most fundamental identity. He's remembering what matters the most in life. Jonah's experience reminds me of my own experience when I faced my greatest storm in life. And there are many storms, 
right? There, there still are storms ahead, but the, the greatest storm I experienced was during high school when I lost my father, right? It's like when you're a young kid, you have a stable family, uh, having just that strong father figure is your greatest security. And once that was taken away from me, I wanted to literally run away from God, angry, you know, just like we see here <clears throat> Jonah doing in this story. Some of you may uh, want to know that I, I did finally sit down with, at Tongues Up in Davina's home where we do the podcasting and uh, Shiong was there, Pastor Shiong was there again to, to host and uh, Sister Davina also agreed to sit in and uh, it was a good dynamic and I was thinking of going in there, max two hours, I'd be out, done. Because my first, my first try at it, remember the audio got corrupted, so I had to redo it. And I took that as God telling me, Paul, you got you to gotta rethink this thing because this is going to you know, stay for a long time and be made available to the church and to my kids. And so reorganize it, can you structure it better and, and deliver it a little, you know, uh, with, with a little more coherency, with a little more like, fluidity, you know. And so I, I thought about it. I gave it more structure. Went in thinking it's going to be two hours. We're done. But then four hours, <laughs> and we, it was four hours, and uh, time flew by. And uh, Davina said she'd have to cut it in three parts, okay. And so that's probably going to be made available sometime later in March, maybe early April. We'll see. But I, I went in there uh, knowing that, okay, my kids will, will need to listen to this, but also it was mainly for my church family. I want you to kind of hear. It was not just about my, my story, but it's, it also included the story of Cornerstone and how we came to be. And so I hope that God will use it to bless you. But, you know, um, thinking about my own great storm in life, it, it took me a few years to recover from that storm. And God used various people and events to remind me of my fundamental identity, that I was a Christian who, who, was, who, were, who was called to fear the Lord, you see. And it's really interesting to see how Jonah's story unfolds here because, like, the only way the storm is going to kill Jonah if he continues to run away from God, right? But the only way to actually, for him to live is the way of literally surrendering his life to God and and plunging himself into the storm. It's counterintuitive. It's like, God, have your way with me. Right? If this is your will, then right, I will insert myself into your will sort of attitude. But it starts with a clear confession. Right? I am a Christian who fears the Lord. So if someone were to ask you those questions, like, who are you? What's your job? Where are you from? I mean, I expect that she would answer with, like, I'm from Northern Virginia, working as an IT, IT consultant. And there's nothing wrong with that response, I suppose, but I really do hope that maybe at least your second or third thing that you mentioned in your conversation would have to, you know, do something with, with your faith or maybe what church you attend, something about your Christian identity, perhaps. I hope that's the case. I hope that it's so fundamental to your identity that it's like someone pokes you, kind of spills out. This is, this is what I believe. This is who I am. This is what church I attend. 
Part three, God's grace to us. Fortunately, the New Testament helps us understand the story of Jonah better. There's this really key uh, passage in Matthew chapter 12 that connects the gospel account of Jesus and who he is to the story of Jonah. I love how the New Testament often clarifies what we read in the Old Testament. It says, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, check this out, the son of man, right, just as Jonah was in the huge, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the grave, right? And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. You see, remember when Jesus spoke to his disciples after his resurrection, he told them that all of the scriptures ultimately testify of him. And so we see this especially holding true with the story of Jonah, Right? Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish was meant to point to the Christ who spent three days and three nights in the grave. That should be clear to us. And if you can't really see it as clearly, let me help you more, okay? You see, Jonah, he hated his enemies, but in contrast, Jesus loved his enemies and gave up his life for them. So he was a greater Jonah. That's the point. That's the point of Jonah. Jonah points to the greater Jonah, Jesus. Jonah was a rebellious and reluctant prophet, but Jesus obeyed his father, and he willingly took upon the cross on our behalf. He was a greater Jonah. This Jonah here in our passage, he had no problem fleeing from God's presence. But remember in Gethsemane, we see Jesus literally sweating blood because he was tormented by the thought of being separated from his father. He was a greater Jonah. He's a Jonah we truly need. And so the sign of Jonah testifies of the grace poured out for us through Christ who is far greater. And the question for us today is then how will we respond to this sign of Jonah now, if, if you're running away from God, will you continue to run from him? I hope not. If you are in this spiritual slumber, right, this state of spiritual slumber or apathy, will you ever feel the urgency to wake up? I hope so. Brothers, sisters, God's grace is meant to awaken us from our spiritual slumber and it's meant to steer us in the right direction once again. You know, some of you have been on your way to Tarshish and you really do need to reverse course and make your way back over to Nineveh, okay? These are not my words. This is a story of Jonah. It's from the word of God. God is calling you to return to him Stop running away from him. He's calling you to see his hand in the storm of life, to recognize who he is. He is not simply one of many gods, 
He is the one true God whom you're called to surrender your life to. And I, I used to be perfectly fine with ending the message there. You know, surrender your lives to God. But I want to go one step further today. Because I don't want you to simply surrender your lives to God today. Once you surrender your life to him, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that there is very good and honorable work that you are called to do, okay? In Jonah's case, he was called to make his way back to Nineveh and to be a faithful spokesperson for the Lord. And so once you surrender, or once you recommit your lives to God, please ask yourselves this question. What kind of work do you believe that the Lord has entrusted to you? When I first started serving here in 2009, I wanted to give our ministry a fresh name. At the time when I first arrived, we called ourselves KPCWEM, okay? Really creative, just KPCWEM, okay? And some, some refer to the ministry as Twinbrook, right? Kind of tracing back into history. But I wanted our members to be inspired with the name that carried with it some biblical meaning. And so we were left with two names in the end, Grace Chapel. Some advocated for that name, and I, I had nothing against Grace. I love Grace, okay? But I wanted to have a name that would inspire people to become builders of this young ministry. And so we went with Cornerstone. Okay, I volunteered everybody. <laughs> Cornerstone. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, guys, who wanted Grace Chapel. We went to, with Cornerstone, and that's what this ministry's been about, calling people to build their lives upon the foundation of Christ, inviting people to build God's church filled with his grace, empowered by his mercy. And today, roughly 15 years later, I want to ask that you would commit yourselves to helping us continue this work of further building something beautiful and God-honoring to the Lord. As you should all know by now, we are really praying that God would bless us with a spiritual revival this year. Right? Not just corporately, but I need, I need one too, personally. I need individual. I mean, there's, a, there's no way... I survived 15 years of ministry without personal revival from the Lord. There's no way. You just kind of get burnt out and you leave, you quit. That's why people quit ministry. There's no personal revival. I need it. You need it. We all need it. You know, historically, when God has produced revivals in the past, it's resulted in pastors and missionaries and various kingdom workers being raised up. And I know that the Lord has already blessed us in that regard, but do you know what else revivals have produced in the past? Revivals have produced new churches okay, and new ministries, but also new institutions like colleges and universities and seminaries and hospitals. And we may not currently have any ambition to build any colleges, seminaries, or hospitals, at least not yet, but we do hope even now to build a new church, a new preschool, like a daycare center. You all know this. 
But I spoke with a few people recently that asking them, you know, why don't we consider establishing an NGO or nonprofit organization so we can offer ministry to the refugees, so many of them these days, so we can maybe offer ESL classes or, you know, job training work. There's so much work that needs to be done. Basically, we're called to reach Nineveh in our own way. And so we need more people who can see this vision, who understand the sacrifices that need to be made, but who also can get excited at the thought of building something great and beautiful for the Lord. So this morning, as we close our message, I like to call all builders. I'm calling all builders to join us in building God's church together. Let's continue to build for the sake of the Lord. We are cornerstone. That's always been our identity. We're to be committed to building beautiful things upon the foundation of Christ. So please join me and dream, not only dreaming anymore, but actually doing the work of building. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see ourselves in Jonah. I pray for those who, like the sailors, are searching for answers in the midst of life's storms. Show them your presence. Show them your power to calm the raging seas of their lives. I also pray for those who are running from your will, perhaps struggling with anger or bitterness in their hearts. Soften them and draw them back to yourself. May they experience the depth of your love and the peace that comes from surrendering their lives to you. And as we together surrender our lives to you, give us good work to do. Give us a mission that we be able to pour out our lives without any regret, strengthen our faith, strengthen our hearts and minds, strengthen our hands and feet, that we may continue the work of building your church and giving ourselves to your kingdom work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.